next weekend at the Big A, just a couple of lists at stake, one Saturday and one Sunday. If you're a new player and want to try an ADW out, why don't you try Naira Bets? We have a $200 match deposit bonus using this podcast promo code Rewind, R-E-W-I-N-D. If anybody needs any help signing up or have any questions, please don't be afraid to contact me at Handy underscore Capper on Twitter, and I'll be glad to help you all out. That's promo code Rewind, R-E-W-I-N-D. Terms and conditions do apply. Welcome to episode 73 of Redboard Rewind. My name is Spencer Luganbuehl, and today we have on a handicapping author and someone who, if you followed Southern California for a long time, you know him. It's Brad Free of the Daily Racing Forum. Me and him go over four races from the wonderful Saturday action at Santa Anita. Those races were 1, 3, 5, and 7. And some angles we talked about are don't look for just one winner. Find a list of possible contenders that can win the race when you're first starting out handicapping. Gaining confidence after a tough start to the day with a solid favorite winning as your top pick. And finding multiple horses that win with the same type of training angles. One example being first time in the Phil D'Amato barn. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, someone who I am very thankful to have on. I have read his handicapping book. He is someone you will see at DRF talking California racing all the time. It's Brad Free. Brad, how are you today? I'm doing great, Spencer. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Very excited to have you on. I was kind of, you know, looking for someone new. I've been having kind of the same people on for California. I reached out and I was like, Pete, do you know Brad at all? And he goes, yeah, I do. I'll send him an email. So... Excited to have you on. How was your weekend? How was Santa Anita being back there? It was. It was actually a very. Uh, it was a very exciting weekend to say the least. It, Spencer, I gotta say, if you're looking for someone new, you you really went you went up the age category a little bit because I, I don't usually qualify myself as or characterize myself as somebody new. I've been around for a long time, but I appreciate the compliment. Um, it was a great uh, weekend. The Saturday in particular was. It was both frustrating and ultimately quite rewarding, as we'll talk about uh, a little bit later on. But um, it was a good weekend. The weather's great out here in California, as it often is during winter. One of the reasons why I live here and have for most of my life. So, um, yeah, it was a fun, fun weekend. Good racing at Santa Anita. And, uh, yeah, things are rolling. So one of the things that you always hear people complain about, Brad, is that oh, the, the racing is too short. You know, there's only four or five horse fields. Whereas for me this weekend, there were barely any scratches, it seemed. And when I'm looking at other places, you know, fairgrounds, Kentucky, et cetera, there seems to be more scratches. And maybe, you know, the fields go from, you know, 10 to 7. But it seems for the most part, you know, if you scratch, maybe you go from a 7 to a 6, maybe a 6 to a 5. But I think at least when you're doing the handicapping, you're not possibly losing four or five horses every car that you possibly wanted to bet. Well, that's one of the reasons why we enjoy the California climate so much. We don't get too many uh, turf races that are rained off because it just doesn't rain in California anymore. Uh, Spencer, horse players are going to complain about anything and everything. And a a lot of the complaints are well-deserved. But as far as field size goes, I mean, right now, the way California is rolling, with only three-day-a-week racing, it has increased the field size, average field size, has been up for weeks, if not months. Now, part of that is due to the fact that Golden Gate Fields has been closed. They reopen on Friday. So we have seen a larger influx of Northern California shippers into Southern California. But the field sizes in Southern California have been solid for months on end. And I know we're coming out of a very bizarre year, 2020. But as far as field size goes, that's really the least of my you know, concerns right now in Southern California. And as, as you look through the, the Saturday um, card, I mean, the field sizes were, they were fine all the way through eight, nine, you know, a couple of sevens, a couple of twelves and tens. So it, the field sizes, that's, that, that's a concern or a complaint that if, if somebody says, Oh, the field sizes are too short in California, I would let that go in one ear and out the other, because it's just not true. We have good, size 
fields in California. Now, there's plenty of other concerns on this circuit, but field size is not one of them. Let's talk about the book. One of my favorite books, when I started to get my fiance into racing, everyone was saying, oh, what, what did she read Buyer on Speed? I said, no, she read Handicapping 101. Listen, I have nothing against Andy Buyer and all the great books he's done, but for me, it's always been about the, the pillars of racing, class, form, speed, and pace, just having to, you know, learn those four pillars and, you know, steadily build on them. And your book, I think, does a great job of it, just taking chapter by chapter. What made you write the book in the first place? And have you even ever thought about writing another one? Yeah, thank you, Spencer. I appreciate it. And I, I was very fortunate to, you know, cut my teeth on, around some of the, the greatest handicappers in Southern California back, in, you know, in the in the 1980s when horse racing was on page one of all the local newspapers. I'm not talking about the front page of sports. I'm talking about the front page of the paper. It was a big deal when I came around and I, I learned from a lot of the top guys. I've, Jim Quinn has been a mentor of mine for years and he has written, a, a, I think about a dozen handicapping books. Andy Beyer, I consider a close friend. Um, Tom Brohammer, one of the, the godfathers of pace, a terrific handicapper in his own right. So I had the opportunity to learn and get to know some of these very knowledgeable, experienced guys who were able to, you know, kind of tell me their stories. And I learned from them. It was in 2002 when uh, the uh, chief executive officer of Daily Racing Forum, a guy by the name of Charlie Hayward, he cornered me at Del Mar one summer. Summer, he said, "Look, Brad, we're thinking about, you know, putting out a new. We'd like to publish a, a, a handicapping book, a, a you know, a, a primer on just for for geared toward beginning handicappers, but something that might be interested interesting also for experienced players. Is that something that you would be, you know, willing or or interested in doing?" And it took me about two minutes. To, didn't take me that long. It took me about two seconds to say, absolutely, I'd love to. Um, little did I know that writing a book is not something that you sit down and crank out overnight. It, was, <laughs> it, it took a long time. It was actually a 13-month process. It took me 13 months. I think I wrote close to 200,000 words, and about 100,000 of those you know, made it into print. So you know, for every two words that I wrote, at least one of them turned out to be pretty good. So it was Charlie Hayward's idea back in 2002, Handicapping 101 was published in 2004, and it goes through, you know, like you just said, Spencer, all the, the, the foundations of handicapping, form, class, speed, pace, and also the secondary factors, and, you know, interspersed among the, the lessons that I have learned and the mistakes that I have made and the occasional big scores I have made are some fairly decent stories, if I, if I don't mind saying so. There's, I, I, I wrote this book as if I was the person that was, you know, wanting to read it. And um, I think that that, I think it turned out pretty well. It, it was, it's been 17 years now since it was published. Most of the information in Handicapping 101 is still relevant. Um, I mean, handicapping is based on on those, those factors. So yeah, that's how I got it. It was Charlie Hayward's idea. I delivered and I got some fantastic help from Steve Christ and his wife, Robin Foster, who's the best copy editor I have ever had the privilege of working with. She picked up things that she had no business picking up on, mistakes that I have made. I'm like, how did you know that? And uh, anyway, she was great. So Steve Christ, his wife, Robin, fantastic uh, colleagues and collaborators, I guess, on Handicapping 101. And of course, I had all the help from all the guys, all the, the knowledgeable handicappers in Southern California to draw upon. So my own mistakes, my own foibles, and many experienced handicappers, they're all included in Handicapping 101. You talk about James Quinn. I kind of built my process kind of over how James Quinn's books were. They just, for me, I always seem to read them a little bit better than some of the other books. And also someone like Dick Mitchell, when, when I started to really get into the to the handicapping world, I just went on Amazon and said, okay, how many books can I possibly buy? And I look and, oh, they're $5 now, even though they were published back in the 80s and 90s. And I'm like, well, now my mom has, you know, 20 Amazon packages at her door one day. And she goes, what's all this? I said, don't, I said, they're just books. Give them to me. And I just go off to my room, started to read as much as I could on it. Let's talk about your process and like kind of how, where you start the race. I know a lot of people start with pace. 
We talk about a lot of people here who like watching race replays. I'm not so much a race replay guy, but I'm definitely one. I'm, I would say I'm more of a class and speed handicapper. Yeah, I mean, when I pick up the past performances, the first thing I look at is I want to know, you know, what kind of race is this race? Is it an allowance race? Is it a maiden race? Is it a claiming race? What's the distance? What's the surface? So you you, you have to, you know, understand what the race is that you are dealing with. And, you know, after a while, it becomes very intuitive. I mean, you can look at a horse, a horse's name, and you go, oh, this, is, this must be uh, one other than turf route because that's what this horse normally does. But in the conditions, the con race conditions at the top of the past performances tell you what the race is. So you have to know what you're dealing with first. That's my first that's the very first step that any handicapper, you know, must recognize. What's what type of race are we dealing with? And what I do next is I'll go through the field and just eliminate horses that have no chance. And you know, you have to be very careful when you're doing that because you don't want to be premature and throw a horse out that later jumps up and bites bites you. So maybe in a 10 horse field, you look through the field and there might be three or four just automatic throwouts. Horses that are off form, they're too slow, whose stables never win. So you can whittle it down from maybe a 10 horse field to a six horse field. From those six horses, then, the, then what I'll do is I'll look at and see who, who are the main contenders. Who are the horses that have run well or have shown enough ability to suggest they could run well under today's conditions? So then I'll narrow it down even further. I also want to know how the race is going to unfold. Who's going to set the pace? Who's going to sit second? Who has to rally from behind? How does the pace scenario influence these contenders' chances? The t contenders that you've whittled down to maybe half the field, you need to know how the dynamics of the race affect this horse's chances. If he's he or she is a front runner and there are four other speeds in the race, maybe the horse doesn't have as much of a chance as you originally thought. If the horse is a come from behind her and there's only one front runner in the field, maybe that come from behind her should be downgrade a little bit. But the very first thing to do is understand the conditions of the race, recognize the contenders, and understand within reason how this race is going to unfold. And that's one of the most slippery factors in all of racing, determining the pace, determining the tempo of a race. And when we start talking about the Saturday card at Santa Anita, I mean, you're going to make mistakes. And I made a couple of massive blunders on Saturday. I don't mind admitting it because you're never going to be right 100% of the time when you try to project how a race is going to unfold. But that's that's it. Conditions of the race, contenders, how the race is going to unfold. Those are the very fundamental early steps to take before you start handicapping. I love the fact that you bring up we're taking horses, you know, from the 10-horse field down, down to six, and then we build off of there. I remember starting off so much, and before I started reading books, I was like, oh, it's 12 horses in the field. Let me find the one horse that I can bet to win or <laughs> – you know, the two horses that I like the most for an exactor or a trifecta. And you just don't realize it. Now, when you start reading books, it's not about finding just the one horse. You, you want to find the multitudes of horses that can win. So a lot of times people go, as I was on the bet squad at Saratoga and trying to teach people, and they go, who's going to win the race? Well, four horses can win the race. What do you mean? Only one horse can win the race. And <laughs> it's just, you know, well, four horses have run, you know, 80 to 85 buyers. They're, they're too closely connected, and you're trying to now guess. Well, this horse is a speed horse and might get an easier lead, so maybe he'll improve the buyer. And this horse is going to be a dead closer against, you know, one speed horse, so maybe they won't run as well. And one of the, it might have been Kramer, it might have been Quinn, but they said, you know, in dirt racing, you're trying to find the horses that are going to improve, whereas in turf racing, you're trying to find the horse that will get the best trip. Yeah, well, that's there's there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and I'm glad you brought up uh, Mark Kramer. I should, should have mentioned him earlier as well as Dick Mitchell, two of the guys who had a gr terrific influence. Mark Kramer is the most creative, imaginative handicapper that I have ever read in my entire life. And if anybody who's out there listening, do yourself a favor and pick up a, a copy of Kramer's book, Kinky Handicapping. It is a wonderful book, and it will open your eyes to the world of possibilities. 
as far as you know, whittling the race down to a handful of contenders, you have to do that. And I, I, I love that story, Spencer. I mean, yeah, when you handicap a race, you're ultimately going to settle on who you believe is the most probable winner. But that's not the only horse that is qualified to win that particular race. There might be three or four others in there that have as nearly as good a chance as the horse that you settle on. So you have to, you know, whittle it down to a manageable uh, size of the contenders that you're dealing with and then go from there. And then, of course, the, the most important factor of all is the tote board, because if you have three horses that are evenly matched, one of them is eight to five and one of them is three to one and the other one is eight to one. Well, any genius knows who you have to bet on in that situation. I will bring up one of my favorite Mark Kramer books, Thoroughbred Cycles. talks about the form factor, horse behavior, and performance cycles in handicapping. But a funny story about kinky handicapping. So I, I started seeing this in, a, in, you know, oh, people had bought this book. And I'm like, okay, I'll buy it. It doesn't, look, it doesn't look like it'll be that expensive. Well, this is when it was out of print. And the first time I went and looked on Amazon for it, it was $485. And I said, okay, I'm not going to buy that book. So uh, I kept checking, and I was getting disappointed. I'm like, guys, I want to buy this book. So about six months later, I check it. $26 online. I have never hit buy so fast in my life to get this book. And uh, I can truly agree with you. It is one of the best books I've read in handicapping. It's just interesting that every chapter is a different type of scenario. And I bring up a lot of Kramer's books. He has one where he just does odds lines and he's picking, you know, it's not about what the horses are. It's, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's not about the condition of the race, what the horses are in it. You know, the proven losers, the right. one, the one type of horse handicapping factor and there's just so many books out there, and everyone thinks, oh, well, everything is, you know, from the 80s and 90s wouldn't matter now. It does. You can find stuff. I think back in the 80s and 90s more, they talked about the fundamentals, which can really help you build off of it. Brad, one other thing I wanted to bring up before we get into the races is just talking about your favorite angles. What, what do you look for when you're trying to angle shoot and find a way to separate contenders? Well, I, I got I to gotta be honest with you, Spencer. I don't like the word angles at all, and, okay. and it, maybe it's just me, and here's why. To me, an angle implies a shortcut, and in there are no shortcuts in racing. There are I, I, I prefer to call them factors. I mean, there, you know, we're going to talk about a pedigree play that I was fortunate enough to take advantage of on Saturday when we talk about the Saturday card at Santa Anita. But when it when you when I hear somebody say, you know angles that to me is like oh you're going to look for a horse you know dropping from special weight down to maiden claiming okay well you can call that an angle if you want to i just call it a class drop an angle again and i'm not i'm not, I'm not taking issue with with your words spencer mm -hmm. i want i want you to know that but and to me when i hear somebody talk about an angle it, it implies that there's some easy fix and some easy way to determine the winner it's just another factor a uh, horse that's stretching out for the first time you know gordon jones used to call them uh, the, the i think he called them a, the pace projection play or some concocted uh, <laughs> cliche like that to me it's just a horse it's a horse trying to carry his speed um so when it comes to angles i'm just i'm just not down with that term i prefer and call me old-fashioned if you want, but I prefer to go through and talk about condition, class, pace, and speed, and understand the basics, and then go from there. I will not get creative until I have first addressed the primary fundamentals of handicapping. I, I know I know that sounds like I'm ducking the question, and I probably am, but I just don't think that there is a specific angle that... I am comfortable talking about. That's fine. No worries. We, we can get started then on these first couple of races. The first one was the opener from Santa Anita on Saturday. It was a one N1X allowance going one mile on the turf. What did you like in here, Brad? Well, this race was extremely frustrating on for a couple of reasons. First of all, I, I had some serious reservations about the horse that I liked. Um, a horse by the name of Greg Dar. And my reservation had to do with the fact that in his most recent start, when he stretched out for the first time and won decisively, he came home his final quarter mile in 23 and two. And that was at Del Mar. And the closing fractions at Del Mar are generally a lot quicker than 23 and two. But I still liked Greg Dar because I thought he was going to make the lead and I thought he would be able to open up a big enough advantage to die home and still win the race. But I knew in my gut that it was a 
it was a, a defective selection because he didn't come home in his only start. He won by two lengths against Starter Allowance Company, but I thought he would be loose on the lead in the first race Saturday. And instead of being loose on the lead, his jockey, Umberto Raspoli, grabbed him out of the gate, relinquished the lead to a horse to his inside by the name of Rip City. Greg Dar never settled down. He did not get the lone front-running trip that I thought he could get. And he completely spit it in the lane and finished fifth in an eight-horse field. So even though I, I knew going in that he didn't come home, but I thought that Rispoli would allow him to rock and roll and he could open up. I was wrong in that regard. And and, and I'm not saying that I would, you know, I'm not going to try to pass post and say, well, I, you know, could have liked the winner or Rip City or whoever. But here's, here's the lesson that I will remember out of this race. First of all, I'm not going to get in love with a turf router who doesn't finish. Secondly, the next time I see Rispoli on a speed horse that I like, I'm going to probably temper my enthusiasm a little bit. Rispoli is one of the top jockeys in California, but he's a recent arrival to this circuit about a year or so ago. And I still question whether he understands the importance of early speed. Two of the greatest trainers that I have ever known, Bobby Frankel and Bob Baffert, those two guys made their way into the Hall of Fame by allowing horses to use their speed and instructing their jockeys to roll from the gate, open up, and try to win it on the front end. Rispoli did not do that in the first race on Saturday with Greg Dar. It was a very disappointing effort by the jockey, in my opinion, and a disappointing handicapping analysis by yours truly. So that's who I, I liked Greg Dar. He didn't get the trip I thought he could get, and I was flat wrong in the opener. For me, I always kind of start off with the favorite of the race. It's Everyone kind of starts off at the one post. I start off with the favorite, whether he's in the 12, 6, whatever. So laneway for me just uh, – it was interesting because obviously dropping out of a graded stake race, that can always be dangerous when you come to this level. But when you look at the odds, 2 to 1, 7 to 2, 4 to 5, even money – one for nine, and this horse keeps going off of these short odds. I just was a little bit skeptical. This horse can definitely win the race. I was just going to try and look for someplace different. Rip City for me from the inside with Mario Gutierrez, Mike Pipey. When you, it, it's hard enough to win one race in a row, let alone two, three. This one won four in a row. Obviously now, because didn't run, he ran for the tag last time, now gets to come up and run now in the regular allowance race. I, I did make a mistake, and we'll talk about it after the race call, but just Mike Pipey, 84, 85, 84, three straight wins. Loves the mile, obviously, four for six at it. I just thought that this one, maybe from the inside, might get what we what people call the pocket trip, just being that first horse there on the rail and could trace after Greg, Greg Dar. You know, a horse like, you know, maybe Laneway would show some extra early speed, maybe be up towards the front. One Another horse that I was completely against was uh, Camaraderie for John Sadler. I just don't mm -hmm. like horses that come off that maiden win and don't, haven't hit the par yet, the buyer par for the race. So this one to me also going off as the favorite and only winning by a nose under Umberto Raspoli. I just kind of thought that was up against it and, you know, went off at around six to one. So I thought maybe that the crowd kind of agreed with me on that. You know, I, I and I, I wouldn't argue with that at all. And I want to add one thing, Spencer, and you just brought up an, a very important point recognizing who the favorite is. Now, you don't have to bet on favorites. You don't have to love favorites. Maybe you never bet a favorite in your life. But any handicapper worth his salt must be able to recognize who the favorite is and why. You must understand why everybody else loves a horse and why, why every horse in the race is at a specific price. If you cannot identify the favorite in the race going in, just identify the favorite, then you then you probably should just pass the race because you don't have a good understanding of, of the contest. You have to know who the crowd is going to gravitate toward. And I'm not at all surprised that Lane Way went favored because he had the numbers. Mm -hmm. And as we know, speed figures rule the tote board. So my, my point is, I would just want to give you kudos for bringing that up that topic. You have to know who the favorite is. You don't have to like the favorite, but you have to identify who that horse is. What did you end up doing from a wagering perspective here, Brad? Was it more vertical or, or horizontals, or were you more of a pass 
in the spot. It was, it was, it was kind of a, <laughs> it was a middle of the road mishmash. The only reason I'm playing this race is because it's the first leg of the pick five. So it was a horizontal strategy. I couldn't find any, any value at all in the verticals and I probably should have passed, but I just think the pick five is such a great bet. I have a hard time passing it. Even I'll just take a small swing and I said, well, I'm just going to, you know, probably sink or swim with Greg Dar. I used a couple others. It turns out I was wrong in later races, so it really didn't matter. And I got knocked out right off the bat. If this race was not the first leg of the pick five, if it was positioned somewhere in the middle of the card, I would have looked through it. I might have still tinkered around a little bit with Greg Dar. Um, but I probably ultimately in hindsight should have just passed the race for me. It was the number one rip city. Just a nice little win bet there. Thought I was getting value at five to two. Let's hear Frank Miramati with the call right now. And they're off very even beginning. Rip City, Laneway, Greg Dar is up close in the opening furlong, camaraderie just behind them and striking a pose four wide, but only two and a half lengths off the speed. Liberal is guided over to the rail, two in front of starting over, and Mantra at the back of the field. Into the first turn they go, Rip City, Greg Dar tugging hard, those two both go a bit wide into the first turn. They're followed by Laneway in third, camaraderie tucks in fourth. Then it's Liberal, fifth, about four lengths off the lead, three-quarters to striking a pose, who's two in front of starting over in Mantra. They swing on to the backstretch, and it's Rip City, three-quarters of a length. Greg Dar is second, lane way to their outside, just a half-length off the pace in third. Then Camaraderie and Liberal, no change in the running order, two more back to striking a pose, back of the field still, starting over the gray, and Mantra. Into the far turn. Rip City still there by a half length. Greg Dar is in second. Lane Way is next. Liberal on the rail and camaraderie fifth. Two and a half covers that quintet. Then starting over, Mantra trying to launch a bit on the outside. Striking a pose is now last. They're at the top of the stretch. Laneway makes his move on the outside of Rip City. Liberals had a good journey. Behind them, Greg Dar has lost some ground. Two more lengths. Camaraderie finding his best stride, and he's a threatening presence, too. But it's Rip City just in front of Laneway. Camaraderie on the outside, starting over late. Camaraderie with good momentum trying to get by Rip City. Here's the line. Camaraderie got up. And the number three, Camaraderie, gets it done, paying fourteen forty with an 86 buyer. Rip City rips my heart out at the wire, just missing by a nose. Uh, really fun race to start off, and just, you know, Joel Rosario down the lane. I mean, there's no one better. Yeah, he, <laughs> he's pretty good um, most of the time. He also puts up some rides that leave me often scratching <laughs> my head. What are you doing? Um, but if you're coming down the stretch – and your your money's on Rosario. You're probably in a pretty good spot. Um, he's a strong finisher. He's one of the strongest finishers in the country. And he he was probably the difference in uh, the case of camaraderie. And by the way, camaraderie is trained by John Sadler, who went through an impossibly cold streak going into the meet. But it looks like he's beginning to emerge from that uh, cold snap. And good to see Sadler back winning races. So camaraderie um, lightly raced and you know he only finished what a, a neck behind laneway a couple starts back and mm -hmm. now we're just past posting but if you recognize that laneway was the was the favorite you gotta at least respect camaraderie a little bit and i know it's easy to say after the race because camaraderie finished only a neck behind laneway two starts back i feel though and this is the whole reason why this show is possible you know pete put a lot of you know confidence in me to write this and i just feel that or produce this and you need to go back and you need to look at your mistakes. My mistake in this race was Rip City had the same three buyer figures for three straight races under under Mike Pipey and maybe wasn't going to improve that much. And then in this race, ran in 85. So we have 84, 85, 84, 85. Whereas camaraderie slowly improving, 77, 80, 81, 86. You're never going to see those huge jump ups on the turf. It's always going to be those slow, methodical four or five point bumps. Whereas you see a horse, you know, go from a 22 to a 78 to a 42 in any type of dirt racing. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Another thing working in camaraderie's favor is the fact that he had only started four times going in. So, you know, you could, I guess, potentially expect that there was improvement still to come with this lightly raced, newly turned four-year-old making only the fifth start of his career. 
And I also think, just to make that last point, is we talk about how lightly raced it is. It is a maiden jumping up into allowance ranks, but when a horse is lightly raced, there can be that extra bit of improvement, whereas a lot of these other horses have raced, you know, multiple times. Rip City was also jumping up, so I feel like if I want a horse like Rip City, why couldn't I have also liked another jump-up horse at 3x the price? Yeah, no, that's a good point. And, and here's another thing. Just, again, we're going hindsight. It's 2020. Last time out, Camaraderie finished his final three eights in 34.93. So he smoked home last time out. He smoked home on Saturday, and he got the money at 1440. Let's move on to the next race, race number five. It was a claiming race, 25,000 N2L, going one mile on the turf. What would you like here, Brad? Well, this is another situation where I, I, I like the horse that I thought was going to make the lead. And uh, just like the first race on Saturday, it turns out I was flat wrong. I, I liked um, a horse by the name of Invincibella, who was taking a very sneaky class drop. When you look at this mare's past performances, you see that she ran last time out in a starter allowance, 16,000, and now was in for 25. But that starter allowance for 16,000 was a legitimate starter allowance with, with with the only restriction being that a horse had run for a $16,000 claim tag. Some of the contenders that she faced last time out had won 12 races, six races, four races, three races, and now she was dropping into a $25,000 claiming race, non-winners of two races lifetime. And she ran well last time out against much better company, finishing third, beating less than three lengths. So, A, she was taking a class drop, Invincibella, and B, looking through the field, I thought that she had the chance to maybe get loose on the lead, but I knew that there was one horse in the race that could completely foil that those plans, and that was the stretch-out sprinter on the outside, uh, Philly by the name of Cowboy's Daughter. So, I liked Invincibella, Invincibella regardless of the presence of the stretch-out sprinter, and as it turns out, the stretch-out sprinter did exactly what I feared, and that was pop the gate, and she came over and dropped in on Invincibella, and Invincibella, instead of getting that front-running trip, she had to sit behind the speed. I don't think she is as effective from behind the pace. She was 1 for 20 going in, so you know that she doesn't have a whole lot of guts anyway, but I thought that she might be able to get the lead and she didn't because Tyler Bays on Cowboy's Daughter did some very clever race riding into the first turn and made sure that his filly made it to the front. Invincibella ended up sitting third behind the speed. It would have been a good trip for a legitimate horse who can finish, but that does not uh, fit the suit the description for Invincibella. She is a counterfeit phony who is one for 20 going in, and she finished fifth. I bet her at three to one, and I, she ended up finishing out of the money. It's interesting going off with the favorite again, uh, Zuchera. I, for me, if I see a horse that's run above the buyer pars, this one had the last you know four races pretty much. This would be like a stone cold lock for me. Seeing Richard Balta start off one for twenty four for the meet with nine seconds, maybe he's just getting unlucky. You never know. This horse had run at the condition one time for Manuel Marquez and ran second by a neck with a huge eighty one buyer. Everything here, everyone would say, oh, well, so you bet the favorite. I did not. I ended up on the number two, Star of Africa. The last three races, not so good uh, since facing winners off the maiden win at Golden Gate have been declining buyers. I think for me it was, I'm not the biggest Patty Gall Patrick Gallagher fan, but just 13% on turf is nothing to shake, shake at. I think the blinkers coming off for me were something that I just thought that might be interesting here. Because they are making a change. Raspoli, I do respect somewhat on the turf as being one of the better turf riders. I know how you said it with the speed. It makes it a little bit different. But I thought it was going to sit a nice little stalking trip here. And maybe Raspoli was going to give me the right type of trip with this one. Well, here's another thing regarding Star of Africa. She was dropping to the bottom class level for the very first time. And that's yeah. another thing. Regardless of what circuit you're playing on, you have to at least be aware of the class hierarchy. And the bottom class level on grass in Southern California, at least during the winter meet at Santa Anita, is $25,000 claiming non-winners of two lifetime. This is the bottom of the barrel, so Star of Africa dropping to the bottom for the very first time in her career. And how many times do we see horses wake up when you take a severe class drop all the way to rock bottom? 
What did you end up doing here from a wagering standpoint, Brad? I bet straight on Invincibella. I started multi-race wagers. I thought that three to one was a square price on Invincibella. And going into the first turn, I knew I was in trouble. For me, it was the number two star of Africa. Let's see who wins the fifth race here right now. And they're off. Invincibella in the center of the course gets the first call. Lagata Elegante goes Cowboy's Daughter. And Cowboy's Daughter sprints in front and then tries to put the brakes on in front of him. Invincibella is down on the inside. And Lagata Elegante gallantly streaming, not the easiest to handle going into the first turn. Joined right next to her by Star of Africa. Then it's a three-wide cover version and Zucchera is at the back of the field. Around the first turn they go and it's Cowboy's Daughter showing the way. Leads by a length and a half to Lagata Elegante in second. Then Invincibella third, Star of Africa under a nice hold for two and a half off the pace. Then it's cover version, a length and a half to Gallantly Streaming, and Zucchera has about eight to make up coming to the half-mile pole. Cowboy's Daughter, the controlling speed. Lagata Elegante second, Invincibella on the fence in third. Star of Africa inching up willingly in fourth. And cover version to her outside is about three lengths off the pace. Gallantly streaming and still Zucchera at the back. Cowboy's Daughter, Lagata Elegante just ahead behind in second. Star of Africa cover version starts to rally a bit will be caught very wide inside of her invincibella awaits some racing room zucchera red blinkers has six to make up they're at the top of the stretch cowboy's daughter on the outside star of africa is now closing in stoutly star of africa getting to cowboy's daughter in the final 16th cover version zucchera it is star of africa close to home star of africa wins three quarters of a length tight photo for second between cover version and Cowboy's daughter, Zucchera kicked it in too late, and then it was Invincibella. And the numbers two, Star of Africa does get it done, paying 860 with a 71 buyer. What I thought was so interesting about this race, Brad, was every single horse in the buyer figure was pretty much between a 65 and a set and the 71 of the winner. So it was a very tightly contested race for sure. It was tightly contested. It was also a very low-rated, slow race, which mm-hmm. is to be expected. It was actually the slowest turf mile of the of the winter meet so far, 137.18. Um, but Star of Africa got the money, dropping down to rock bottom with the blinkers off, and that was a nice selection and a good fat payoff at 860. I'm st- still just frustrated at two blunders that I made on the Saturday card, both very similar um, in the opener with the Philly that or a horse I thought was going to make the lead. And then in race number five, I thought Invincibella could make the front. She didn't. And that was that. Zuchera, the favorite, obviously only dropping four points. So a 69 isn't a ton, but it's enough to finish off the board in this race. What do you think they need to do to possibly fix this for Richard Baltus? Obviously they had him in the starter allowances. Then they put him in the optional 50 with the starter allowance. And now off the board again here at the bottom. Is this just one where they have to just kind of look at and just refigure completely? I mean, she, she's gonna she'll win this condition eventually if they go fast early and the and you know everybody dies home. But the pace scenario worked definitely worked against the chair. They went to half in forty eight and mm-hmm. almost two. Uh, three quarters in 113 and one. So for Zuchera, who is a comfort behind her, who's pace dependent and who has broken slowly in probably half of her nine career starts, um, it just the, the dynamics of the race did not set up for her. Eventually, she's going to knock out this condition. But when they write this race back in a month or so, I, I guarantee you that Zuchera will not be my top selection unless there are five speeds in the race and it looks like a total um, pace meltdown. But Zuchera is just one. She's kind of like one of those career maidens that just always comes close. Only Zuchera is now a winner and she often comes close. She earns decent figures along the way. She's always finishing. But to me, she's just a, she's just a phony. A horse that neither of us had talked about was the uh, horse cover version coming off of that maiden claiming win where she kind of got a good setup as a closer, then raced in an allowance race, stretching out to a mile and an eighth. Now we have the cut back to a mile and good enough to run second. I just kind of thought with the maiden race being such a good setup that this was probably about the ceiling for this mare in this race. Yeah, I actually gave her a lot of respect in this race. She was one of my top contenders. I, I, she feared me um, because she had never raced at this level before. And I know that it took her, what, 15 starts before she broke her maiden. I, you know what? When you're talking about N2L claiming races, whether they be on turf or on dirt, 
I don't care how many times it takes a horse to break his or her maiden, when they are realistically spotted in their next start or next two starts, I don't have any problem backing them. So I thought the cover version was a definite contender going into this race. I know that she took forever to finally win, but in her first start against winners, she was just completely overmatched in a one other than, and they were being realistic with this six-year-old mare dropping her to the very bottom. So I thought she was a contender. I got to say that Victor Espinosa has had a great career, but he doesn't ride much anymore, and he doesn't do a lot for the horse, at least from my perspective. So... Um, yeah, she would. She would. I would have a hard time betting on an Espinosa-ridden horse, but I did respect cover version going in. Let's move on to the third race of our podcast. Race number seven was a maiden special weight, going one mile on the turf. We're doing a lot of turf racing today. What did you like in here, Brad? Well, the the early part of the Saturday card was so frustra- frustrating to me because I I did have some you know kind of marginal opinions going up, going into some of the races, but I knew that the the, the best opportunities were going to be later in the card. And if I was watching the uh, XBTV workouts on number one, Earl's Rock, a European import who was making her first U.S. star for trainer Phil D'Amato. Now, D'Amato has won a handful of races lately with recent acquisitions from out of state and even out of the country. Count Again was an arrival from Woodbine, uh, won a snake race at Del Mar. Kathkins Peak, Majestic Stripes, horses that broke their maiden first start in the country. And Earl's Rock was training magnificently over the training track at Del Mar, at Santa Anita. Now, I know this is a grass race, but they, don't rare, they rarely have turf works. The point is, Earl's Rock's workouts on the training track were fantastic. And then if you dig a little bit into the form, his European form, he only started once, and it was in Ireland. The horse that beat him, a case of you, returned in his very next start and won a group three at the Curra. The third place finisher came back to finish second and fourth in his next two starts, and the sixth place finisher from that race came back to win twice since. How do I know all that? I went to racingpost.uk.com. Racing Post has provides a terrific resource for European imports, and you can look up the horse's form, see who they ran against. It's kind of like DRF Formulator, only it's based on European racing. So I loved Earl's Rock going in based on his European form, based on trainer pattern, and based on the workouts in which I thought he looked super in morning workouts on dirt. Now, I also recognize that he was probably going to be the favorite. And every now and then, I'll take a swing at a short price. And I thought that Earl's Rock represented value at 2-1. to one. Turns out he went off a little bit less than 2-1. to one, But I bet anyway because he was 2-1 to one going to the gate. But I thought that there was a long shot in here that was worth chasing one more time. And I have to admit, I chased him last time. His name is Man Friday. Man Friday is a horse that they spent three and a quarter for, son of American Pharaoh, produced by a grade one winning mare, Emma's Encore. But after his first three starts, he was going nowhere, but he continued to train well. I bet him last time in a sprint, and he ran poorly again. I was willing to give him one more chance on Saturday based on a couple reasons. First of all, he is by American Pharaoh, and he is switching to grass for the first time. He was stretching out from a sprint to a route, and as I mentioned earlier, Bob Baffert is a guy who doesn't mind losing a race on the front end. What he hates is when a horse gets taken back and then loses. He instructs his jockeys to exploit the horse's attribute, and in the case of Man Friday, stretching out from a sprint, you knew where he was going to be. He was going to be positioned in the top three, no worse than that, at least. He was going to be in the race, stretching out, getting Lasix by a sire whose progeny have done very well early on in this stallion's career. American feral progeny tend to prefer grass. And so I was willing to give Man Friday another chance. Now, I didn't think he was going to beat Earl's Rock. I thought Earl's Rock was a potential standout. But I thought that Man Friday at least had a chance to hit the board, and that's how I approached this race. I took the short price and bet to win on Earl's Rock, and I also keyed him over Man Friday in the verticals. 
So for people who don't know, maybe uh, this is the first time listening to the program, the way I kind of got started in racing was Scott Shapiro was looking for a Southern California writer for Santa Anita, and I kind of threw my hat in there. Hey, I've never done this before. We wanted to take a shot. He was. And through those first couple years in 2015, 2016, Phil D'Amato was the 20% trainer that I was always trying to beat, so I understood his his horses very well. And looking at this race, when he is one of the few trainers for me, I think Kristoff is probably another one for Naira. If they're coming in first-time import, I take a second look. Obviously, first time in the D'Amato barn in general is just a very good ang- angle or factor, as you would say, 25% with a positive ROI. When I see that the horse, I didn't know that they had won a grade or group three, but when I see the horse that they had lost to it already won coming back, I said, okay, this one's coming in with probably some really good form or at least good class edge. Now I was going to try and find the secondary horse that I was also going to play. Like you had said, good value for me. I thought it was great value at just under two to one, and now I need to find the horse that I could play underneath. I ended up going with the horse on the way outside enough nonsense for Doug O'Neill and Mario Gutierrez. I thought the race at five was good enough and that maybe them stretching out now and switching back again to to, uh, to turf. If we get something like that with a fast speed up there where they were able to hold on, even though the pace was very fast, two back, I was looking to kind of make that my exact to play. Hearing you talk about Man Friday, looking at that uh, three-year-old Colt, American Fair was done so good on the turf. And you talk about chasing a horse. If you're chasing a horse and the horse is 20 to one the last couple times out, you can keep chasing a little bit. Don't chase the horses that are five to two. That if you're putting, you know, five or ten dollar win bets and you finally hit one and the horse is four to five, well, guess what? You still lost money in the long run on the horse. When they keep being these long shots, you're yeah, you're gonna get punched out and knocked out, knocked and dragged out a couple times because the horse is gonna run dead last. But when you finally find that one key factor, that's when you're gonna finally get that windfall coming to you. I totally agree. I don't like to chase horses. A lot of times. You're just wrong when you handicap. You pick a horse, you like the horse, you bet the horse, and the horse runs poorly. Okay, you are just wrong about that horse. But if, but maybe there were reasons that the horse ran poorly, or at least reasons to expect that there is the potential for improvement. And Man Friday, he continued to train well in the morning. And with all those changes that we talked about, grass, route, Lasix, there was at least the possibility that he could move up under different circumstances and he went off he went to post at 26 to 1. Let's see if Earl's rocking it done for me and Brad or and which one of our exactus hits are right now. And they're off. Enough nonsense is sprinting up from the outside to get right to the rail. Man Friday came away in good order. Daniel's magic is up close and so is Exalted Joy. Earl's Rock on the inside, fifth, about three lengths off the speed. Then it's Achilles racing on the inside of Endless Sunset. That pair followed by North Pole on the outside of Airman, and Ivory Sky, who was in tight, is the trailer. Around the first turn, and it's enough nonsense, leading it by two lengths. Chased intently in the early stages by Man Friday in second, and then comes Earl's Rock on the rail in third under a hole. Then it's Exalted Joy fourth, three lengths off the lead, two and a half to a well-settled Daniel's Magic in mid-pack. Down on the inside comes Achilles. Endless Sunset is in between those two, racing two clear of Airman, then North Pole second to last, and three in front of Ivory Sky. Enough nonsense takes him into the far turn. Man Friday on the attack in second. Exalted Joy on the outside third, and Earl's Rock is in fourth. Endless Sunset and Daniel's Magic are still right together. A length and a half behind them comes North Pole on the outside of Airman. Ivory Sky will be very wide while picking up a bit of momentum. And Achilles trails there at the top of the stretch. Clear sailing for Earl's Rock. And he is let loose. And Earl's Rock comes with a powerful bid to the lead and takes off. Blowing right by enough nonsense. And Man Friday, it's Earl's Rock in a nice U.S. debut. Earl's Rock graduates with honors. Wins by four and a half. Photo for second between Man Friday and Enough Nonsense. Those two were going at it throughout. And just behind them, their balance was between Endless Sunset and Airman. And the number one Earl's Rocks does get it done, paying 560 And Man Friday coming in for that nice exacta, Brad. Great picks. Yeah, that, that was it, it. Erased all the frustrations of the earlier part of the card when I was just you know wrong with pace analysis, wrong with my wagering strategy. But the great thing about racing is you don't have to be right 
50% of the time to make money. You can be right once in an entire day and actually have a winning day. And this exacta, I, I was actually shocked. I did not look at the will pays uh, before the race. I just figured, well, whatever it is, is what it is. And the $1 exacta with Earl's Rock to Man Friday paid $64.30, which I thought was a huge overlay. And I was very happy to uh, pocket that coin. So this is one of those races where you do a lot of the work, you do the research, and you, you, you jump in, and it turned out very well. My exact choice ran third enough nonsense, seven to one. Just another, you know, we, we had talked about how American Pharaoh, this horse now jumped up as Man Friday did to a 71 buyer, a huge, you know, new buyer top. And enough nonsense also kind of did the same thing. Went from the 65 turf sprinting now is a 71 turf routing. So I think turf is definitely the right spot for both of these horses going forward. And as you look, you know, you have Earl's Rock as a prohibitive favorite. And you're trying to beat horses like Airman going off at three to one or North Pole at seven to two. And you can kind of find that you don't have to just go, you know, with the second and third choice. Try and be a little bit creative. And, you know, Man Friday could have easily came in third or enough nonsense as he did come in third. Like you're going to have to, you know, take these little lumps. Whereas if your main idea is Earl Rocks is supposed to win, make sure you at least have that solid win bet first on that horse and then start to get a little bit more, you know, deeper down the rabbit hole with the wagering. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, not that a five dollar and sixty cent win payoff is anything to brag about, but the worst thing to do is to to love a horse. And he Earl's Rock was an easy horse to love, mm -hmm. um, but the worst thing to do is love a horse and then you you fiddle around. And you say, well, I'm not going to take you know two to one or nine to five. I'll I'll, I'll have to hit a, an exacta or a trifecta. And you end up blowing. So, you know, had Man Friday run out, I still would have made money. It would not have been a, a score by any stretch of the imagination. But at least I would have taken, you know, it, it does a lot for your confidence to cash a bet, even if it's not something that you can, you know, brag to your friends about. I'm not going to go out and tell all my friends, hey, everybody, I hit a winner that paid 560. But it does a lot for your own psyche to know that you were right in this situation. Especially when you have the first, like, it, it, the first few races for me on Saturday. I have that near-miss second. My horse breaks dead last in the second race. And then the third race, I had a horse win for 380. So it's like, okay, you're seeing the ball. You missed one race. You were close on another. You had a horse win for 380. Okay. Not the best choices in, in life, having a horse win for 380, because you have to hit so many of them. But, okay, now let's attack the rest of the card. Now I hit Star of Africa, Earl's Rock. I'm, you know, slowly trying to, you know, escape the chalk train, but we're going to get there sooner rather than later. Exactly. I totally agree. Let's move on to the last race of the pod. Race number nine, it was the grade three lot. Senegas, six furlongs on the turf. I know I had a horse that I could not wait to bet in here. What about you, Brad? Yeah, me too. Um, I, first of all, I, gotta, I have to admit that we talked about recognizing the favorite. I honestly believe that Jolie Olympica was very close to being a standout in this race. I mean, she she had everything going for her. She's the class of the field. Her speed figures were above everybody else's. She was, her pace, uh, her running style suited what I thought would be the dynamics of the race. <laughs> Once again, I turned out to be wrong in that regard. Um, but anyway, Julia Olympica was the even money favorite that I thought would be extremely tough to beat. So I liked her on form. What I didn't like was the fact that she was even money making her first start since July. There was a new horse in this race, a shipper in this race by the name of Charmaine's Mia and Charmaine's Mia in her most, she was in from Woodbine making her local debut for none other than trainer Phil D'Amato. Now that would have been enough reason right there to at least give her a second look. But when you watched her workout, on January 3rd, and that workout was available, or probably still is, on XBTV. Uh, the, they do a terrific job televising workouts. Charmaine's Mia on January 3rd blew the doors off Earl's Rock. Now, earlier on Saturday, we saw Earl's Rock win his U.S. debut by more than four lengths, and Charmaine's Mia toyed with Earl's Rock in that workout. That was a dirt workout. This was a grass race. But all it did was illustrate how well Charmaine's Mia was doing going into her California debut. She also was sitting up on the board as the second longest shot in the field at odds of 16 to 1. My main play was an exacta box with Charmaine's Mia and Jolie Olympica, but I, if Jolie Olympica 
you know, ran out, I was not going to be left with nothing. And at 16 to one, I was willing to take a chance on Charmaine's Mia in the wind pool as well. So I also bet in that daily double. So this was a race given the confidence that I gained a little bit earlier with the Earl's rock man Friday exacta. Now I'm feeling a little bit brave. And so I slammed it pretty good betting to win on Charmaine's Mia exacta box with Jolie Olympica and then Keen. uh, those in the daily double to race number 10 for me, me and Pia talked about Jolie Olympica before. And I think it was when she won the Buena Vista or maybe even the last time from last year, when I had him on the pod a while back and he had talked about how this horse was just going to be one of the top, just top turf horses, either in the country, at least in the Southern California circuit. And I thought there at even money, this one was gonna be very difficult so I was, again, again, trying to find a horse to possibly add on to. But then I realized, oh, Alexandra's in this race. I have a huge, huge she, – she, I wouldn't call her my pet, but I love Alexandra. I love the way she runs. I bet her in the uh, Breeders' Cup. I bet her in the Jiper. Better in when she lost three back in the uh, race against Jolie Olympica. I thought at 5-2, to two, if maybe the Breeders' Cup was just a little bit too tough, she had 200-plus buyers that kind of matched up okay with Jolie Olympica – I was ready to slam Alexander with a solid, solid win bet. Let's see who can win the grade three La Senegas right now. And they're off. Very clean beginning. Jolie Olympica began well, and Alexandra has just lost the rider. Alexandra lost the rider shortly after the start. Charmaine's Mia on the inside. Bahamian Bourbon is now coming through to battle for the lead, and Superstition is three wide in third. Lighthouse is fourth, about two and a half lengths off this trio, and another three to Jolie Olympica. There's a half mile to go in the Las Cienega Stakes, and it is Charmaine's Mia who takes the lead on the outside of Bahamian Bourbon. A length and a half to Superstition, moving up on the outside to claim second. Then Lighthouse, who's under a hold, four lengths off the lead, and another two back to Jolie Olympica. They have a quarter of a mile to go. Charmaine's Mia, two and a half length cushion on Superstition. Lighthouse angles out on the far outside. Jolie Olympica still with work to do. Down at the rail, Bohemian Bourbon is honest. There's an eighth to go, and it's all Charmaine's Mia. Charmaine's Mia with a commanding lead of four lengths. Then Lighthouse and Jolie Olympica. It's going to be Charmaine's Mia to win the La Cienegas by about three. Jolie Olympica did rally belatedly to get second. Then it was Lighthouse in third, followed by Superstition and Bahamian Bourbon. And the number two, Charmaine's Mia wins, paying 34-20 with a nice buyer of 98. Great pick, Brad. Way to absolutely slam in every single... These are the type of races that, like, if you just... All you need is one in a day. You struggle in the early part of the card. You kind of build that confidence in the middle, and then, wham, great pick. You know what? It's very unusual to get a price in a six-horse field. A 16-to-1 Phil D'Amato acquisition with fantastic workouts... The truth of the matter is, Spencer, when they were going to the gate, I thought I, I thought to myself, what am I missing? Why yeah. why is this horse 16 to 1? That I couldn't figure out. And it worried me a little bit. I thought, did I not see what I saw in the workout? Um, you know, do I do I have I misinterpreted Phil D'Amato's, you know, stats with recent acquisitions? I figured, well, doggone it, at 16 to 1, I I guess I can I can be wrong. Um, this race unfolded entirely different than I expected. Charmaine's Mia, she because she was feeling so good under the care of D'Amato, she showed very surprising speed. She raced virtually gate to wire. And who knows what might have happened if not for the misfortune of Alexandra. She clipped heels out of the gate. Rosario went tumbling to the ground and, you know, she never had a chance to show her stuff. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe Alexandra would have blown past Charmaine's Mia and Jolie Olympica. I don't think so, but we'll ne- we won't really know until Alexandra runs again. It was an unfortunate situation, very strangely run race with Alexandra losing her jockey and Charmaine's Mia showing surprising speed, but I'm not going to throw back a $35 winner. And when that happens too, I remember g- growing up as a, as a fledgling handicapper and being like, Oh my, my jockey fell off. I'm so mad. And just now like being, you know, uh, probably more mature is also the right word to use, but just, <laughs> I, it happens. I, 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 you know, the second race I had the horse break dead last. I was supposed to be a speed horse. This stuff happens. This is the variance. If you play poker, you understand, you know, 
your aces aren't always going to hold up against kings, queens, and jacks. There is going to be variance in part of it. We're supposed to be, as a group and a collective, just people who can try to guess as best we can and use the proper odds in front of us to make correct decisions. My- well, that's exactly – yeah, you're right. And and that's why you have to be very careful when you're, when you're backing short prices because there are so many things that can go wrong. A horse can find trouble. They can bleed. They can lose their jockey. They can get you know caught in traffic. They can engage in a speed duel that you did not anticipate. And it's very difficult to make profit long-term by backing low-odds horses in a sport that is inherently – Chaotic. I mean, yes, favorites win one out of three races, but there's a lot of things that can happen that can compromise your chances, whether you're betting a, a favorite or a long shot. The difference is when you're betting long shots, when you're betting prices, you don't have to be right as often as when you're betting short prices. And I will say this about Jolie Olympica. Everyone's saying, oh, the layoff, you know, hampered her and had her. She only ran a 90 buyer. Well, in the last time she came off the layoff, she ran a 103 and a 101. So, Maybe as she's getting older, she's slowing down. Maybe she's very lightly raced the five-year-old. I think that this was probably as a grade three, just a stepping stone when you're already, you know, grade one place and a grade two winner. And also she, she won this race last year. I think this was a stepping stone. I think next time out we see a much more improved Jolie Olympica and one that maybe you weren't supposed to be betting even money first off the layoff when there are better races on the horizon. Like the grade three was definitely not the, the last step for this, for this mare. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is going to be a very difficult uh, mare for me to analyze going forward because Jolie Olympica had been forwardly placed in all four of her U.S. starts. But I don't know if Mike Smith took her back on purpose or whether she has lost her speed, but I did not expect her to be trailing the field early. I thought she would be up there close along with the, with the other front runners. In, instead, she found herself fifth in what turned out to be a five-horse field after Alexandra lost her jockey. And I'm a little concerned because I don't like it when aging horses begin to lose their tactical speed. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe this was by design going in. Maybe they just wanted her to finish just so they can stretch her out next time. And I got to go back and watch and see exactly what Mike Smith had on his mind leaving the gate. But I'm, I'm concerned when a horse is not as forwardly placed in a race as I expected that horse to be. Because to me, uh, when a horse shows deteriorating speed, it also can be deteriorating form. So I don't know. Maybe Jolie Olympica is not the filly that she was last year at age four. I don't know that she's not either. So it's To me, it's a, it's a coin flip moving forward. I guess you have to give her another chance because she did finish okay. She was up to finish second, but she was never really looked like the Jolie Olympica that we saw four times last year. And I think, too, uh, when you see the number three lighthouse get DQ'd, obviously, for Alexandra's mishap, what did the top two really face in here with Alexandra obviously not having a rider? Exactly. There there really wasn't much in the field. And by the way, that disqualification, I mean – I feel I feel badly for anybody who needed uh, Lighthouse, you know, in the third spot for her to be disqualified for coming out, you know, a half a lane at the break. I thought that was a really poor judgment by the track stewards. Um, I'm thankful from a very selfish perspective <laughs> that did not cost me any money. But it, it's calls like that that uh, cause betters to lose confidence in the game. It was a horrible disqualification, in my opinion. I seem to agree with you as well, especially when you see stuff like Bayern from the Breeders' Cup happen, and now we're doing stuff like this. It really, to me, just doesn't make sense. I think we need to find more unity. I'm not saying we need like a bunker with six stewards in it, but I just—it's so hard when you can see that you know the hurting at Naira, and then this happened to Santa Anita. It's like, well, okay, now where, where can I start handicapping? Do I just do Sam Houston in Texas because I feel like the stewards are the most fair? It just doesn't, you know. It's very difficult when you see these type of things happen. I remember. I had a Chad Brown put up from third to win because the top two got DQ'd. I still have no idea how I won that race two summers ago in Saratoga. It was just unbelievable. It's horrible. You know, I mean, eventually they all even out. We've all been, you know, DQ'd out of a score. We've all been put up into a score. But you just hate to see a bad call. You hate to see the stewards make a bad call, a call that did not have to be made. I'm all for, you know, letting the results stand most of the time unless it was blatant. Um, this was far from blatant. When horses break from the gate, things happen. 
And in, unless a horse came out severely and totally impeded another horse, then I think you just have to let the let the players play. Um, a bad DQ, like, like I said, uh, eventually they all even out. That is all the time we have for today's podcast. I want to thank Brad Free for coming on. Go check out his book, Handicapping 101. Brad, where can people find you on social media to uh, chat you up on the races from Southern California? Yeah, Brad Free 1 at Twitter, but most of my copy is available at drf.com. That's where I generate all my most of my uh, content. So just check out uh, drf.com. Look for the Brad Free byline. Thank you so much, Brad. Appreciate having you on. You bet. Anytime. And now, here's Barry Meadow with another tip. This time it's on Class Droppers. Don't forget, you can check out The Skeptical Handicapper at TR Publishing or on Amazon. Take it away, Barry. This is Barry Meadow with this week's Skeptical Handicapper tip. Horses are constantly either being lowered or raised in class. Some players prefer to bet the droppers, figuring that the easier competition will lead to victory. Others prefer the risers, since these horses generally are in good form and are likely to be overlooked against today's stiffer competition. To investigate this, researcher Ken Massa and I looked at more than 273,000 class droppers and more than 214,000 class risers. The results were clear. Droppers far outperformed risers in all three categories we looked at, win percentage, return on investment, and impact value. Looking at win percentages, Four-level droppers won 19%, while four-level risers won only 8%, and the droppers returned $0.09 cents per dollar more. One-level droppers won 15%, while one-level risers won just 11%, and again, the droppers returned $0.09 cents per dollar more. And droppers easily won more than their fair share of races, while the risers did not. We also looked at a subset of more than 200,000 claiming droppers and risers. Again, droppers were the clear winners winning 15% compared with just 10% for risers, with an ROI of $0.06 cents per dollar better. I'm Barry Meadow, author of The Skeptical Handicapper, using data and brains to win at the racetrack. And with that, we want to thank all the listeners again for listening, and my special guest, Brad Free. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Pierre Thomas Forentel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin, and our In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time.